too many times we are confronted with our age. And some will use it against us and dismiss the experience that we might have as a result of it. And some might use it as the brunt of a joke, a punchline. And some will simply say age is a number. Well, I find the same thing is true with time. People have a flexible relationship with it. Sometimes they are on time. Sometimes they are not on time. No one ever says they're off time. But I had a conversation this week with somebody who suggested that there must be a way that because they're creative, they can suspend their relationship with time for a while and simply do what they want to do. But then they said the words that I found most interesting without consequence. A lot of people have heard me tell the story of the nun, the one that I read about in Intelligent Life, The Economist spinoff magazine. Must be 16, 17 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago now that I read it. But she had lived in the Abbey her whole life for 45 years from the age of 16. And at 61, she went to art college in the center of London for a year. And even talked about the idea that walking outside filled her with immense anxiety. So when she returned to the Abbey and the Mother Superior asked her what painting she would create in order to communicate the outside world to her fellow sisters who may never see it. She said, streets and streets of people all dressed in black, coffee in one hand, phone in another, treating time as though it was a tyrant and not a gift. It wasn't the first time that I was challenged with the idea that I treat time like a tyrant. And that I lose perspective regularly on how long it actually takes me to do something. And I remember being challenged over this when I talked about my experience of film school, where we watched so many movies a week. And someone said, well, what else did you do? I said, everything. You know, the thing about movies is that they can be like radio or a hockey game on TV. You don't have to watch every second. It's the feeling of it. It's the sense of it. It's the rhythm of it, the understanding of it. And now so many of us do more than one thing at a time. And I read something in the New York Times the other day that said multitasking was a myth and that if we don't do one thing at a time, we're not doing anything at all. Angela Gargano, who um, has a long and storied uh, career um, in social media and in fitness, talks about 
the idea of living your life by design rather than by default. And that really pushes on something that I've been thinking about for so long that I wrote about in more in 2017. One hundred and sixty-eight. I am given one hundred and sixty-eight hours every week. In fact, we all are. Beyonce Knowles, Ellen DeGeneres, Henry Kissinger, me, and every other human is gifted one hundred and sixty-eight hours every week until we die. There is a window where we are also given free reign over our one hundred and sixty-eight hours to do as we like, to become what we will, as the caterpillar gestates in the pupa. We become a butterfly and freely bounce to and fro in flight. 168 hours. Some people think it isn't enough. Well, I am Martin Johnstone and I disagree. I thought of something. A shop I might own, a store. And then I thought of two things at once. The first, that there would be a menu. And it was wise to look at the prices before considering the choices. And the second was that there are a number of mandatory uses of time that we all must adhere to, whether we like it or not. We must all sleep, or at least lie awake wondering if great Aunt Ifrida was actually as clumsy with a specific China set as was suggested, or whether great Auntie Thea, who spent the Second World War in Eindhoven, was an agent for the resistance or a double agent. So to sleep and perchance to dream means about 56 hours, seven days times eight hours. Well, let's refer to it as average time spent in some sort of bed, yours or <clears throat> theirs, where the intention is rest, recuperation, recovery, and not entertainment. Entertainment, sex, commerce, carnal activity is a separate number as couches and floors and kitchen islands and ottomans are also employed, as well as cars and trains and toilet seats in Italian restaurants near Charlotte Street in London, if you are so inclined. So I will put a number to that later. I, for example, have been described as hungry. In other words, I would like at least three hours a day in carnal situations with me and Anamorata. Hungry is one word for it. Of course, carnality in my case includes lying on the floor and staring at the ceiling and arguing about names of constellations, for example, or simply going through the Spotify playlist of the relationship without revealing other playlists for other relationships or situations. And it is often sticky to explain why situations need playlists and other relationships also have Latch by Sam Smith or a mix with Bjork in it by Ten Walls. That three hours a day means I've allocated 21 hours that's 77 so far, 56 hours of sleep, 21 hours of entertainment, leaving me 91 hours. I work for 60 minimum. Well, what about that leaves 31 to each shower socialize? I have to find situations to make playlists about or for and run exercise. A few points before the what about questions begin. Work includes commuting. I do no shopping for myself. Well, I do. I stopped going into shops years ago unless I have an appointment. And frankly, buying something in the 21st century is best left for while commuting anyway. I hate for people to know much 
about my reading habits when they share floors, beds, playlists, and any part of the aforementioned 21 hours. Entertainment? That's in socializing somewhere and is planned to the minute. How long a film lasts is as important to me as what it is about. This three-hour epics reeling fantasy tales from my youth are relegated to the list of films I will indulge in once. I no longer have to work 60 hours a week. Well, now you. Go ahead. At the same level of detail that I offered, not much at all, yet I feel as though I am laid bare, please plan your 168 hours. Your next 168 hours. For argument's sake, please start at Sunday evening when I am trying to forget 60 hours of work from the previous week and finish on late Sunday afternoon when I am good, normally worried about whether the food was any good. Start the sleeping. Be honest about how much of it you do. Think about hygiene. How long do you invest in your well-being, health, or appearance? Yes, the gym can be included here. I often forget to plan hygiene and have to cut from other stuff. No, not forget to wash, but forget to allocate a time for my 168 hours to it. You see, if I'm expected to somehow plan 168 hours and ignore something inevitable, I'm being foolish. And that is the point of the exercise. Remember the Victorians accounting for every minute? But we are given finite resources, a life that will end, days that will end, moments that will fade. Beyond the frivolity of a concept such as moments, there is the reality of time as so wonderfully imagined by Ovid. Smiley led me here. George Smiley, John Le Carre's spy master, led me to this moment. I would give credit to Le Carre himself, but I am committed to the value of fiction and the souls we interact with, even though they are created. I find it critical to use the guidance fictional characters provide. For example, as has already been mentioned, I refer to it, to thine own self be true, as Polonius' advice to Laertes, his son, and Ophelia's brother, as he departs with his famous friends from college, who are, as we learn later in an oversensitive play, are dead. So Smiley's path is laid with philology. I had to look it up, so most, so most of you. Stones and great big boulders of wisdom formed in some part by the volcano that is Ovid's metamorphosis. He died 2,005 years ago in exile. And he wrote a book called Metamorphoses. In my first published work, I spent some time explaining that both Kurt Vonnegut and Rupert Sheldrake spoke, wrote, studied, lived with, died from, about the same thing, the environment where change or innovation occurs. Vonnegut, and I am recalling this from memory, so do indulge and forgive me, used words like fringes and edges to describe it. I imagine he found the Sex Pistols and Basquiat and John Belushi as evidence that exciting and new things occur on the periphery. The Sex Pistols being on the edges of the British invasion, Stones, Beatles, Kinks, The Who, etc. Basquiat being on the fringes of Warhol, Andy, and Harry, Deborah, as in Blondie. And Pacino, Al, especially after Dog Day Afternoon, where American art was developing at hyperspeed and Belushi being the new frontier in American comedy. Sheldrake, of course, of course, wrote about morphogenetic fields, literally spaces where the origins of change and innovation occur. Times Square in the 1970s, New York City in general, I guess, has given us the backdrop for so many great stories, Terminal Bar, and scenes, Sybil Shepherd walking out of a porn theater that Robert De Niro took her to, for example, the shores of Hispaniola as Columbus erected his church, which gave us the new world, the shores of Mexico, where Cortez burned his ships. Ovid, while exiled from Rome by Augustus, wrote Metamorphosis. David Bowie, post-Ziggy Stardust, gave us changes. 
They both have the same impact. When we consider Ovid or apply his verse to our lives, we are left frightened by his ability to destroy cliches and populate minds with that elusive larvae where insights gestate and develop, given the right nourishment. For example, he explained that time is the devourer of all things. Please consider the power in each of those words, as well as the gravitas of the statement. Time is the devourer of all things. You must feed it. I often think of what it would be like to have a polar bear as a pet. I would have always have a bucket with fresh fish available. I let my mind entertain the notion that if I run out of food, then the polar bear will not have run out of anything to eat. I will simply have run out of time. Ovid also explains that age is the destroyer. Helen's face and Hercules' strength both succumb to age. They are devoured by time, too. I struggle with which is the more passionate perspective. But after close analysis, I know time's eternal hunger and gluttony, making time guilty of a deadly sin, outweighs age's rampaging nature. Age is also guilty of a sin, wrath. Everything succumbs to both. Everything positive, everything negative, all things are devoured and destroyed by age and time. Our lives, too, week by week, every 168 hours, we are confronted with what no longer exists. Every Sunday night, I face a list of things that are not simply things because they have meaning to me that are gone. They populated my previous 168. Ovid puts these things into perspective for me. I believe that he was writing about Rome about Aurelius already passed and the triumvirate, Julius, Octavius, and his oppressor, Augustus, and how he expected the wolf to simply be destroyed and devoured too. Ovid placed time and age on his side. With the empire, metaphorically, in the sea, he could return once vanquished, subsequently victorious. Time as an asset and age as an ally in this instance. What we become. One of the critical aspects of my 168 is that I'm a result of what I have done. Not what I want to do, but what I end up doing. I think of it in a morbid sense, but only to dramatically make my point. On my deathbed, I will be something. I do not know what. It will not be for me to decide. In fact, how I see myself is not how people see me. The truth is that people judge me based on what little they glimpse. I find this true of all human relationships. Again, I have reminded of Smiley and his philology. Despite our proximity, we are like trees and knowing of one another. There is so much more to a person, and we tend to live with our primary judgments. Those based on work, because we are colleagues, or those based on what is read, because we share a community. I think there is something bold inferred by Ovid and his anthropomorphization of time. Of the items on my 168 that I share, work, entertainment, I hope to be remembered for the things that I do while alone, write and paint. I do not care if I'm remembered for the work I have done, the successes, the failures, most likely, the number of brands and industries I have innovated across, markets I have traded or launched products to. I want to be thought about when trees grab your attention or the sun dazzles you. I want inevitable to be what you read on a plane and give to a stranger next to you. The problem I have is that time is the devourer of all things. It is eating away at the time I have left to create anything memorable. It is eating away at your opportunity to discover something you might remember me for 
or I might remember you for. I will only ever be what you witness or experience from my 168. I will only ever be judged by what people see of me in the briefest of encounters. Even lasting intimacy does not have half of our 168s. When is the last time you happily spent 84 hours with someone? I don't think I ever have until Mexico. And no, sleeping doesn't count. Outside of sleeping, 84 plus 56 equals 140, by the way, which leaves 28 hours for everything else we do, which is one third. The person that explains that they would like to spend more time with us most sacrifice, must sacrifice, hold them to this reality. You must sacrifice something so that you can comply. Hold yourself to that one. We become what we are. We become what we do. We are judged by what others see of us. What is in our mind may not be what is in theirs. If their perceptions dominate our interactions, then we are hiding from them because our one succeeded revealing us as something contrary to what we want to be. It is not a circular argument. It is a potentially metaphysical point that is akin to the area of a sphere. Four thirds pi r cubed. You cannot be two people at once and who you are is defined by what you do. How people judge us is based on their expectations, experiences, and subsequent perceptions of us, and potentially how we measure up against their expectations. Forget that. When we disagree with who they think we are, we cannot successfully argue who we think we are, because by doing so, we use some of our 168, arguing that we are not the person someone has witnessed. We want to be someone else and are left arguing that we wish they could see us as. What we are to them as we agree and argue our identify identities as something contrary to what we demonstrate. While you're swallowing that and let it digest, I will suggest that there is an alternative. Planning your 168 is based on who you want to be. As a caveat, I will suggest that what we want is more important than who we want to be. Essentially, we will be whoever we need to be to get to what we want, which suggests that we create two traps. The first being that we can become someone, get what we want, and then experience discord because we are not the person we want to be while having what we want. An example of this is the Yokozuna. If you want to be Grand Sumo Champion of Japan, then you will have to adopt the sumo lifestyle, which includes dieting and gaining weight as sumo are expected to do. You cannot become Yokozuna without doing so because only those observing the sumo lifestyle and understanding and performing the rituals associated with the contest can enter the contest. Sumo employ geisha. Sumo sleep more than 56 hours a week. Sumo eat similar meals every mealtime. They start very early. They are obedient. They gain a lot of weight preparing to compete. They do not exist outside of their pursuit. They sacrifice greatly to get what they want. So do they want to be obese? Do they want to live without monogamy? Do they want to be bet on in the same way a horse would? We do not know. What I know from that thing fraught with infidelity is my experience. My experience is that we have decided consciously, subconsciously, perhaps even unconsciously or pre-consciously, if you are a Freudian, that we want to be and that desire manifests itself through our behaviors. Sumo want to be grand champion. They do everything they can to be exactly that. They may regret gaining so much weight, though, or perhaps their goal wrecks havoc over their relationships. What do you want? I cannot train them without sacrificing sleep. I sleep less when my metabolism is increased. Weight, I lose weight slowly and then very quickly when I train. 
relationships, it is my experience that no one actually wants to run with you. And those that do only do so for short periods of time and choose sleep and fewer blisters and shin splints instead. They're much smarter than I am. When I complete the distance, I am satisfied as the person I have become. My 168 changes dramatically when I train for something or even attempt a new diet. And sometimes realize the person I was when I set the goal is different. Am I equally satisfied? I don't think I know. I have one mind. It is made up of several parts. I have a conscious mind. I'm aware of what populates it. It makes up 20% of who I am, sometimes less. I also have a subconscious mind. I have no idea what is going on in it. It dictates my behavior, though. For example, like everyone, I do things that I cannot explain. I sing country music verses and hum Baptist hymns. I also have an ego, an id, a superego, possibly a superego, the jury is still out, and an imagination. I know myself well enough to know that I spend most of my time making things up that aren't things because they have meaning, which means by definition, I'm using my imagination, my creative engine. Beyond my conscious mind, though, I am ignorant to everything. My feelings, desires, motivations, and memories, I cannot tell you what plot my subconscious is preparing for tonight's dream theater extravaganza. What I remember as my dream might in fact be what my mind, all the moving parts, has created to make me feel better or motivate me or simply prepare me for the day. I am often dream of losing my teeth before humiliation. Do I think that I can predict when my worst moments are coming? No. I believe that my brain prepares me for humiliations by concocting the dream. Now, as an aside, get used to the tangents as they make up the insight. I must confess that I deliberately use concocting as opposed to repeating as in a recurring dream, as I believe the recurrences and what we claim are recurring dreams are actually dreams that make us feel a single way over and over again. The reality is that we attempt to repeat experience so that they make us feel the same way over and over again. We eat the same foods, we meet the same people, we sit in the same seats and ride the same horse, all in the vain attempt to trick our minds into letting us feel the same way as we did before. That is where your 168 comes from. My 1682. I believe that it is incidental if your 168 makes you rich or happy or famous or whatever it is that you want from it. I believe and you and know from my own experience that the 168 makes you who you wanted to be, whether you are aware of the choice or not. Beyonce becomes who she wants to be. Yokozuna does the same. So do I. So do you. The trick is making the conscious decision and committing to the details of the plan that will get you there.